When I was a university student a long, long time ago, uh, there was a student prank that became popular in our in our sort of school year. The idea of it was somebody, uh, not me, I will deny all knowledge if questioned, definitely not me, but somebody would sneak into a local garden and steal one of their garden gnomes. Often this would be just before summer break, and the gnome would get taken on vacation and to various trips during the summer and have photographs taken of it in many unusual and exotic places. And when classes resumed in the fall, we would put the garden gnome back in the garden that it came from, along with all the vacation snaps and maybe little notes um, saying what a good time uh, he, he'd had on vacation, say on the beach or in the mountains, all of that. And we would have a giggle and the owners would have no idea who borrowed their gnome, but they'd have all the holiday snaps as evidence that he'd enjoyed himself. Well, today's book has one, one small story quite similar to that along with many, many more. So hi, and welcome to the Running Book Reviews podcast, where we review books written for runners, about runners, and by runners to help you decide if you'd like to read the book for yourself. We also hope that listening to us chat about running can keep you motivated about your own running and maybe inspire you with your running or to try something new in your running. My name's Alan, with my co-host Liz. We're going to talk today with author Harvey Mitro about his book, Taking Life in Stride. Taking Life in Stride is Harvey's memoir, but divided into short stories. The short stories are divided into themes and each theme section has an introduction. Also kind of a little bit of a story. There are six themes. There's racing, moments, Fun on the Run, Life's Little Difficulties, People, which was my favorite section, and Family. The stories can be read independently, but some characters are featured in multiple stories throughout the book, like Harvey's first dog, Chachka. A little bit about Harvey. Harvey Mitro is a husband and father who lives in Toronto with a degree in kinesiology he has been working as a personal trainer and has guided exercise for people ranging from age four to age 101. Maybe he'll tell us a little bit about that experience. I want to be 101 and, and be hiring a personal trainer. He has been a runner for over 30 years, has broken four minutes for the mile, and has represented Canada internationally. His best performances were in the 80s and 90s when he had won some of the most competitive races in North America, like the Cherry Blossom Mile in the U.S. So with uh, great pleasure, we introduce Harvey to the podcast. Hi there. So uh, the first question, um, in your book, you mentioned that you were thinking of writing a book of short stories starting around 2010 or 2011. This is also related to the first question that we always ask, how did you finally decide to write this book? Yes, I mean, it's it's a good question. And in some ways, it's a complicated question, because at different points in the process, uh, it, I think my answer will be different. But uh, it begins with, I believe, a love of storytelling. Uh, I am a personal trainer. And if you can imagine my clients running on the treadmill, you then could imagine me telling them these little different stories. So to help pass the time, uh, as they plod along on the treadmill. And 
further from that, these clients began saying, you should write a book about these stories. They, they enjoyed the stories. Uh, and so that put the idea in my head. Uh, and then from there, uh, the evolution uh, of the story writing came both from opportunity and, and the process of starting it up. So I think I envisioned uh, a number of stories that could make the pages, but as uh, I began uh, moving through them, uh, they evolved and the, the types of stories and the direction of the stories changed. So um, really, uh, if I look at the origins, I have to then speak of two of my clients, David and Noreen. Uh, David is an Order of Canada uh, award-winning uh, literary person uh, who he was given the order because of his contribution to Canadian literature on a number of levels. He's one of the founders of the Giller Prize. And Mrs. Taylor is the founder and um, driving force behind the, the Taylor Prize for literary nonfiction. So uh, these two kind of giants in the literary world in Canada, who are my people running on the treadmill, if you can imagine. Oh, wow. and yeah, That's so amazing. when other people are telling me to write the story, I first approached David, who's a, who's an English professor at the University of Ottawa, uh, and asked him if he'd help me because I'd never written before. And uh, and he said, sure. And sure enough, he came the course. He followed the course with me all along. So from there, my my writing evolved into what is the book that I've now completed. And so there's a lot more to that i'm happy to tell you about it if it fits the question so, so was that was that pretty daunting then because that they're, they're big hitters in terms of literary knowledgeable people you know i think i would feel a bit like you know going to kipshogi and saying oh will you teach me how to run quick you know it's <laughs> like it would be quite intimidating um, it, that's a great find it that way yeah that's a great intuition because in fact uh, it is kind of like that. I'm a novice stepping into the arena of of masters. And yeah, uh, my first, so I, I, I laugh because my first uh, draft uh, was about a 20 page story. Uh, and I handed it to David and he marked it up and did the English corrections. But he handed back to me and said, uh, this is beneath you. Take out eight pages. And I was mortified. Because, oh, wow. yeah like what do you do with that right so i i take it back and of course you know i thought i had given him something that was really fantastic sure. and, yeah. and he and he just it basically deflated so he uh, like puts a d d minus yeah. on it and yeah gives exactly it back to you. I, I got the <laughs> x right and so i i started the process i went home and started rewriting and and through those moments that felt it felt perhaps demoralizing i recognized that uh wait a minute like I've been along a course of a pursuit of, of something that, that mimics my own version of excellence in the running realm. And why would I expect anything less from being a writer? You know, like why would I be a great writer off the start without having to do any work? So I started through the process of eliminating pages and would, you know, talk to David as I went along. And then he would say, yeah, that's right. You've got to take, things out you take the reader left and right and, and you're taking them all over the place and and you've got to you've got to take them on a, on a linear journey that uh you have to respect that uh this isn't a self-indulgent process you have to provide a story that the reader 
can follow and and uh, has like a good narrative arc. So again, to understand that that first story, I had eight separate drafts, and he was kind enough to edit all eight. Oh wow! As, as it began to take shape. Now, as I wrote further and further, I got better at it, and and it took less drafts to come up with what was finally making making the book. And the other thing he insisted on was that I was sending out when a draft was ready. I had to send it out to magazines and uh, different publications to to get them to publish it. So uh, publish some of my separate works uh, to validate that the writing was good, that it wasn't just us that thought so, that other okay. experience in the market. in the Like field. A, a peer right. review almost. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so that's where, where uh, the stories began and they evolved from there. Yeah. So if people are reading the book, then, then now they know that they're reading... Uh, a peer-reviewed uh, article uh, from somebody who's trained uh, from a beginner to a, to an expert. I mean, did you take some of the same stories that you had maybe entered into magazines and put them in the book? Or did you just use that as like, okay, so they like this kind of thing, so maybe this other story will go in the book? Like, did you use separate stories for the two projects? Again, great question. Um I had six stories that I sent out, uh, six of my earlier stories that that I had written. And when David gave them the okay, I, I would send them out. And he said, I want to see four stories published before you think about completing it, it as a book and approaching publishers uh, about this book. So that's what I did. And four of those six got published. So I was really proud of that. And that took place over like three years. <laughs> this didn't happen suddenly. Uh, it was sort of an ongoing thing. But uh, what I found was uh, um, I feel, if I'm being completely honest, I don't think my best eight pieces were ever sent out. Like, I really felt that my best writing came later because uh, as uh, uh, David would always tell me that a uh, story needs needs a reason to be told. There has to be a why to a story. Uh, if you want it to be compelling uh, to the reading audience, there has to be a why. And um, I felt that as time went on, I understood more about the whys and and I got stronger at, at expressing that within the weaving of, a, of the individual stories. You know, it sounds a lot like training, you know, if you want to relate it to running. Uh, because, you know, your your training has to always have a why. And also even just like your reason for pursuing goals in running has to have a why. So um sounds like it, um, it very much was the same as running in that way. Oh, there's so many parallels, Liz. There really is like good workouts versus good days <laughs> writing, uh, self-doubt when you're out there and have a rough day and Sometimes I'll read a story and I'm like, oh, that's crap. Like, and, and, and it just bothers you until, until you can make it right. There's so many parallels to running and writing. And I think that was really helpful for me that I, that I had the running experience uh, to know that, okay, I feel badly today, but this might not be how I feel tomorrow. So, you know, don't, don't uh, you know, throw everything out just on, on how you're feeling on the day. You mm -hmm. need to be in there for the long haul, right? Yeah. So I guess we can start off by maybe talking about one of your stories, because one of the first stories in the book was about your experience leading a blind boy uh, to a national record. 
And um, like, I guess what uh, struck me about the story was that you talk about feeling really connected to that person after the race was finished. Like you didn't know this person before, but after you finished that race and it was only a 400 and 800 meter race, you felt like you had this special bond. Um, maybe can you describe that experience and uh, also some of the logistics just uh, behind like leading a blind person in a race? Because I think, you know, probably a lot of listeners are not familiar with that. Yes. Well, um, this goes back to when I was in grade 11. So we're talking around 1980. So how things might be done now will probably be different in terms of guiding a blind runner. And, and really, if I look at exactly what played out, I'm sure it wouldn't play out that way today. But my experience was I was at this event uh, which was um, a, a special Olympics style event for track and field and was uh, there assisting another athlete who was doing the shot put, who was a close personal friend. And uh, in this situation, it shall happen. My aunt was a volunteer uh, to help run this event. And she then said, we need someone to help this blind runner. And she knew that I was an accomplished young runner, but I'm in grade 11. I've never guided a blind runner before, but I'm a strong runner. And uh, so she introduced me and they sent me out. And that's how it started. The two of us then uh, uh, got out and did some strides together. I had my my arm just under his uh, arm and I went to the outside of the track. So it would have been my left, left arm holding his right upper arm. And I guided him through some strides and we kind of got comfortable a little bit together and there we were thrown right into the race uh but there's something about physical contact with another human being and I, i'm a young person at this time and and i'm having to hold this person and this person has to trust me and we race we we this is an important race for him and um gosh i'm invited right in like to experience him experience it with him and and have physical contact with him the whole way and go through the process and, and in more than that be his eyes i instinctively started speaking to him and sort of almost like commentating and coaching at the same time uh encourage, encouraging things like that and none of this was scripted it all just happened but i felt it, it led to a connection that was like nothing as i had ever experienced before and quite profound and I and I tried to express that to the readers yeah and this guy's moving pretty quick because this is not jogging this no. is 400 meter uh flashing around the track basically so he's putting yeah. a lot of faith into some kid who he's never met before yeah. uh, I guess he's a he's 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 experienced at this point in putting his faith into people almost like, said blind faith uh, no pun intended but you know no. sort of you know I talk about it in the story as almost having a, another sense not not meaning sight but the, that capacity to trust that's what struck me that like to trust in a way that that I as a as a young person I can't couldn't trust another human being without yeah. sight. and his he ran his 400 I believe in 58 seconds so wow. anyone who's that's run fast. at that speed knows like that is that is you're hauling yeah, You're out mm -hmm. there really we can't fine. do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can't do it anymore, anywhere close to that now. 
and I and I know that that's just so fast, and and to run that fast with with a grade eleven kid on your arm, uh, you know, uh, it, it's really something. How how old was the um the competitor? We were the same age. He may have been a year okay. younger than he may be a year younger than I was. I believe he was in grade ten, and I was wow. Younger. I think I think the I think the nice thing about reading that story was, and this occurred in several of the stories, probably some of the stories were designed this way, but you get a real emotional buzz out of out of it. It's, it's not a huge story, but it it has enough in it that you you get the emotional sense of it a little bit towards the end, and you, you get this. And we'll come on to that for some of the other stories. I mean, some some of the stories are just snapshots some of them are actual they actually try to touch the essence of the the human human part and i think that think that does um some some of the uh, stories are pure slapstick as well i think <laughs> there's a whole there's a whole uh, gamut of of different uh, types of stories in there um but that one i think i certainly got you know an emotional reaction from finishing up that little story and talking of other types of stories, I guess I should ask you, what prompted you to take a course in creative dance at university? <laughs> we have this we have this guy in university who's probably found himself in with all the graceful I wouldn't I wouldn't say ungraceful, you're probably quite graceful at the time, but no. uh, ungraceful find his way in with all the graceful <laughs> little ballerinas. And then there's Harvey, who's doing the same course in creative dancing. And not only that, but you had actually a practical a practical exam where you had yes. to put your own creative dance together. Yes. What was that all about? Well, as as an uh, aspiring runner through the late part of my high school years, I competed a lot away from class. And I think my marks suffered. I had to work really hard as a student just to get by. I wasn't a natural student, and uh, and and my marks coming out of you know, out of high school, they weren't great. And I applied to all these schools. I was denied entry into all the courses I wanted to take. Uh, and I even had some of the coaches at the schools trying to help me get in, uh, and I still wasn't getting in. And I was declined for kinesiology at Waterloo and was accepted. For some reason, they just accepted me into dance. They sent me this acceptance into dance. <laughs> but you I didn't apply. You I didn't, didn't apply. apply to dance. But I, oh, no, you can't come into kinesiology. But if you want to go into dance, you can. And I'd never <laughs> danced before. So, but my brother, who was also a student at the University of Waterloo, my older brother, Matt, he took a look at the core requirements and said, look, it's in the same faculty as kinesiology. In first year, you're taking all the same courses except for these two dance courses. It's kind of a human movement uh, type of thing. That's right. It was all in the same faculty. I'm in the same classroom with the kinesiology students for all the courses except for the two dance courses. And so if I, if I had a couple of electives that I took these kinesiology courses that dance students don't take, and if I could get by, I could go straight into second year kinesiology, and I'm not even behind. Okay. So we said, okay, let's try to, like I said, okay, I'll try to backdoor it. And I met with my, my dance advisor and I explained what I wanted to do. And her, her, her face just dropped like, <laughs> really? 
like like you <laughs> really should, oh, don't want to dance <laughs> yeah like you know you want to you want to do this and 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 I was like it's my only chance to go to university and I really wanted I really wanted to go and and so that's what I did and yeah the the one story talks about my experience uh as a dance uh, in this creative dance class where I'm one I'm the only guy in the class I'm six foot four uh, I've never danced and I've got to do I've got to dance with dance majors all female oh it was a gong show so uh, <laughs> the story then explains everything that ensues from there and it does relate to my life of running uh, as 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 the story uh, unfolds it explains how those two things end up connecting Hmm. I think like since we're on the topic of university, maybe we should just like head right on to the beer mile. Um, you know, you, you have a story about the beer mile and um, it really actually doesn't sound like a lot of fun at all. Uh, you're basically trying to keep down vomit the whole time while running. And then every lap you had to, um, you know, drink another beer. So I guess my first question is, uh, did you ever do another one after that experience? Sadly, sadly, <laughs> okay. we had a couple of years where we ran the beer mile. Oh my and goodness. We even did a beer naked mile, if you can imagine. It was on April 1st. It was like zero degrees and a bunch of bonehead university. <laughs> <laughs> there we are thinking, oh, here's a good idea. Anyway, I guess if it, if it was that cold, there probably wasn't too much to see. Exactly. And it was that <laughs> we did it in the dark. Thank God. Okay. But, hold on. Uh, I have, I just have a side comment to make because I was, I saw my friend that I hadn't seen in a while. I saw her last weekend and I met her kids and one of her kids is 13 and she was telling me all about TikTok and she was telling me all about how every time somebody starts to even do something that looks like it might be ridiculous, someone takes out their phone to film them. And my first reaction was, thank God that didn't exist when I was in high school. And like, now that you're telling me this story, I'm like, thank God it didn't exist when you were in high school. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me tell you what did happen. <laughs> and this this isn't in the, this isn't in the beer mile story but someone did come out with a camera and there were uh -oh. some photographs that started snapping halfway through fortunately they're they're grainy and it was dark <laughs> but there, there's a few of them that i'm hoping none of the participants become politicians mm. because if they come out there definitely would be compromising but it, you know they won't come out and Fortunately, uh, and camera that, technology wasn't really that good then. Yeah. So absolutely, it dark. It will all will all our listeners know what a beer mile is? Basically, you do one lap of the track, you drink, oh, you drink a beer, you do one lap of the track, you drink another beer, so you repeat four times, so you end up drinking four beers in very very quick succession and racing really rather hard. Yes, uh, in between times, and really the two things are not at all compatible. Um, not at uh, all and, mm -mm. and there's actually an official beer mile that's run now that, yeah there's a world record i think a canadian may even hold the world that's record. correct and, and i'm kicking myself because i know him and i'm, and I'm trying to bring his, his name and i'm hopeful we'll, we'll let it go and it may pop into my head but he's run the beer mile in four minutes and i believe it's 428 his world yeah. record yeah. for the mile and it, like it takes him about it takes him about five or six seconds to drink each beer yeah, running the mile in like four oh 
So you got to drink. <laughs> you got to drink a beer in seven seconds four times <laughs> and run a four minute mile. Right, and you're not allowed to throw up. You're not allowed to vomit, mm-hmm. or you or yeah. you have to get do DQ'd. an extra lap or something. Uh, yeah, you get to disqualified basically. Disqualified. Yeah, like yeah. It, it's an incredible, uh, incredible thing. Uh, but oh, Corey Belmore, there it is, Corey Belmore. Yeah. Uh, and and I'll tell you if you if your listeners want to look up Corey, there there's some there's a, some videos showing just what an incredible feat it is and how fast he's running. Uh, he's a 350, 339, 1500 meter runner. Uh, and boy, wow. he does in the beer mile. I, I mean, I don't know who's going to break that record, but it is something. Yeah. Because if he can run 339, oh my goodness. 1500. Yeah. yeah. So he's, yeah. he's really fast and he can drink beer really fast. I think those two skills are not found in very many people at the same cool. time. <laughs> I, I, I would agree with that. <laughs> Certainly not found in me, as I learned running the beer mile. But you did do it again. I did it several times, and uh, I will not. <laughs> I know I will never do another one. As I comment in the story, I, I think I, I threw up and beer got into my eyes. Oh, no. No. Oh, and then I, you know, as I say, Valentine's Day was over for me and the beer mile. But beer, beer has a habit of bringing people together sometimes. Liz, Liz doesn't understand this because she's not mm-hmm. a beer drinker, but um, oh. being a beer drinker, you know, it's a, it's a social glue. It brings it people is. together. Um, but running also brings running also brings people together. And um, th- th- that's, that's a segue to um, maybe your story with the Jamaican guy that you, that you met standing in the queue at Tim Hortons. Tim Hortons is the, uh, the Canadian uh, Starbucks uh, chain, chain st- Canadian Starbucks, let's say, yeah. Um, <laughs> not, not really, but, but kind of. Yeah. The Canadian Dunkin' Donuts. And you're, you're able just standing in the line and just seeing this Jamaican guy, you're able to make a, a connection be- through running. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe, I mean, maybe you could tell us quickly a little bit about it. Yeah, this is a, was a wonderful experience, and this is uh, it hinges around Usain Bolt. And uh, uh, I, many of your your uh, listeners will, will remember when Usain broke onto the scene uh, internationally with his Olympic and world record, uh, uh, nine, it was a 9.69 clocking or something. I, I might be wrong about the time mm-hmm. off the top of my head. But he had just set that world record. And it was the next day and I was in a gas station and I saw a, a young man uh, wearing a Jamaican uh, soccer jersey. And I recognized it as the Jamaican soccer jersey. He was a young black man. And I was a couple of uh, positions behind him in line. And I I, I, I got to talk to this guy about Usain Bolt because I was just busting because it, it was the greatest feat of human athleticism to date that I had ever seen. It was just, he was otherworldly what mm-hmm. he achieved. And, and I was just had to talk to this young man. Well, uh, he kind of, you know, first, like, why is this, why is this guy coming up to me and talking? I, I don't know him in, in the gas station. I tap him on the shoulder. You know, when someone looks at you and he, there's a look of like, what the, what the heck, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, but I said, look, I just saw your jersey. I got it. T- I have to talk to you about, did you see this race? And soon as that, I said that everything changed all of a sudden, the face changed. He dropped. He smiled. It was like, oh my god! And then he starts regaling about what the people were doing back home uh, in Jamaica, celebrating in the streets. And he had just been talking to someone. We have this 
beautiful animated conversation, two people connecting over the love of sport and human achievement. And, you know, otherwise we would have had no reason to connect. And anyhow, we go through the, the lineup at Tim Hortons and, and uh, I'm waiting for my ice cap because he's finished and gone. And all of a sudden I get a tap on the shoulder and there's the same man. And he hands me a brand new, still in the foil, Jamaican uh, team jersey, this identical to the one he was wearing. And he said, I wow. just want you to have this. And like, melt your heart, you know, like, yeah. wow. It just, I went, wow. Like, I was so happy that I reached reached out and sort of broke through my inhibitions just because I wanted to talk to him about something positive. And, mm-hmm. and wow. And then all of a sudden, I, I have this connection. I actually wrote, wrote into the Toronto Star and it got published about, about just the encounter, not, not the story that's in the book. I, in the book, I, I really go deep into it, but I just uh, sort of a really short piece for the Toronto Star about what it is to be a Torontonian and be in a multicultural society and be able to connect through sport and kind of the bigger uh, uh, virtues of sport and the Olympic movement. And uh, yeah, it was a, a wonderful experience. Did you ever see him again? I never saw him again. I was kind of, I was kind of, because it, it kind of happens so fast and then yeah. it's uh, I know I kind of hope that when I wrote into the Toronto star and my name was there, that you know, maybe we, maybe he'd see it and maybe we connect again, but that didn't happen, but it didn't diminish, uh, didn't diminish the moment. And I still have that Jersey and uh, uh, you know, I, I still cherish it. And I can see, I can see you like actually lighting up as we're talking here. Oh yeah. Just talking about it. I can see you just sparking. Yeah. Uh, no, just wonderful. thinking of reliving it. You yeah. had uh, also a few other opportunities to wear it because Usain Bolt, he like yeah. he he announced retirement and then he came back and each time like he just uh, he just dominates. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, he was a, a spectacular ambassador for track and field just by his his amazing human achievements. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I said to the young man at the time, I, I didn't think we'd see someone in our lifetime better what Usain Bolt has done and I still you know obviously technology is changing I, I I could be wrong and why wouldn't there be another another phenomenon like that but he was just so far beyond anything I had ever seen but who knows who knows mm-hmm. I mean there is now um, because now there's also technology in the shoes and it's it's yes. extending to the track world so I mean you never know right um yeah. The the track itself hasn't changed all that much, but the uh now the footwear is changing. So yes. that could bring on some more some more good performances. Yes. Um I guess uh talking about about bonding and um bonding through sport, it, it seems like you also found a different way to bond with people you didn't know. Um it, it was um the story about you stealing a little garden rabbit from uh, somebody's garden. <laughs> well, when I first started reading that story, it was funny. I figured like, oh, you, you know, because you describe sneaking after dark to somebody's house. And I thought like, oh, it's probably a prank on one of his friends. But you didn't know this, these people. Um, you no. just stole their rabbit and you um, brought it with you all over the world. And it's funny because it seems like it, it you were able to connect with people and people actually wanted to have their picture taken with this rabbit. Um, 
Yeah, I guess like when I was talking to Alan during our run, after I had read this story, uh, I thought like, like, it was kind of a great story. It was really fun. But I'm like, where would somebody get the idea to do something like that? And um, Alan told me that it was a prank that they used to play as kids in the UK. And um, so I guess, was this something like, how did you get this idea? Where did that I, come I, from? It was, it, I was I was interested in what you said there, Alan, because um, you talk about the garden gnome and, 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 and people stealing them. And, and so what, when would this have happened? What year would yeah, you have been? This is in the uh, late seventies, early eighties. Okay. So, okay. Because this is going to be right around. Time, probably. No, I, I, I would have done it later. I would have done okay. it in the, the late, uh, in the late eighties. Yeah. It was, would have been 1990 that I did it, but I had never heard of the, the stealing of the gnome. So the way it happened with me is uh, I had picked up some lawn ornaments in Mexico and brought them home for my mother to put in her garden. Uh, and she put in put it in her garden and she added a bunch of others. And then my brothers and I kind of started rearranging them in these comic ways week after week. And, and then someone stole one of ours, uh, someone that I worked with and held it for ransom. Uh, so... <laughs> They stole one of these ones that my mother had out on the front lawn. We had kind of a busy road in front of her place or my parents' place at that time. And so this is where I got the idea. I had made the Canadian team. I was going to be traveling to a number of different countries. So I thought, I'm going to go and steal somebody's lawn ornament. I didn't know what who. I didn't know what the lawn ornament would be. But out I went one night just in search of a lawn ornament. And I took it uh, and I had it for the better part of four months Uh taking it all around the world. I think we went to uh, seven different countries and, and all these different locations and taking photos as you described with the garden gnome. And then I wrote a story on the back of the photos as if the rabbit had got up on its own and traveled around the world. And, and then I put it in the baggie and left it on the doorstep of the people that I had stole it from and ran into the, ran away into the night again, never intending anything more to be, to, to come of it. And more did come of it, but uh, that's that's the other part of the story. Oh, that's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. You didn't. You basically you you you, you didn't. You weren't able to stay anonymous. I was not, and mm. and until I heard what you said, Alan, I I thought that what I did preceded the garden gnome thing because Travelocity they do the garden. There gnome. You go. That's why they have a garden gnome on there. Right. Uh, right. And. Yeah. So I thought what I did preceded all that, but it, it now learning from you, it didn't. This was happening even earlier when when you were uh, a young guy. And yeah, that would be yeah. in the UK. So maybe yeah, you UK, traveled yeah. at different different. Mm. It seems like it seems like times. it seems like teens are teens everywhere in the world, and so they come up with the same kind of crazy ideas. Right, right. There you go. Crazy. Because there wasn't there wasn't social media back then, so you didn't learn it from social media. Did not know. So um, we saw your your current dog uh, just before we started. Um, uh, in in the background, um, Twyla, um, who looks exactly like uh, the dog that features several times in your book and in several stories. Who's called? They're, they're sort of a whippet whippet type of dog who's called Chachka. Rather than prompt you, maybe you could just tell us where does Chachka come from as a name? That's quite. It's quite unusual. And uh, tell us something about, about Chachka. Okay. 
Uh, well, as you say, Chuchka uh, factors um, all throughout the book. And and I, I've tr tried to use Chuchka in the book, the stories about Chuchka, kind of as these light little stories. My, my mother was teasing me as I was testing out the story. She said, like, God, are you, are you always so serious? And, you know, some of the deeper stories, she, she'd razz me like, God, can, can you lighten up? But all along, I, I wanted to tell the story of Chuchka, but instead of telling his story in one in one long story, I've kind of divided it up into these little episodes. Uh, and Chuchka came to us from Humane Society. We were looking for a dog and uh, went there and went back into an area that we, we shouldn't have gone back into. It was actually a restricted area because he was waiting to be reclaimed by whoever may have lost him. So he, there's a time period that goes by. So we went back there and this little this little hound was tucked away and he saw us in and he came to his cage and he stuck his paw out. And, you know, here was this little skinny running dog and Nicole, my wife, Nicole and I, both skinny running people, saw this little hound and fell in love with him. And, and so we put in for him that when the period passed, could we have a chance to adopt him? And we were so fortunate to have him. And he was such a character. He did so many things to embarrass us and, and so many things that were, were funny and, and, uh, and fun. Uh, so uh, writing about him was a real pleasure and a real pl pleasure bringing those memories and stories to life uh, for other people to read. And I actually put in my, uh, my question for this that uh, in the book, he's not always the most perfectly well-behaved dogs. And I suspect that this made you love him even more. Uh, absolutely absolutely you know we weren't the best owners either yeah. like when you think of it like we kind of have this this yeah, you... motto to leave him off his lead when we ran with him you know we try to let like whippets need to run like whippets and greyhound they need to run and they love to run fast and and it's a beautiful thing when you see it when, when they run so you know when, when you don't have a dog fully under control you are rolling the dice <laughs> for some some things to happen and and we paid the price on that a few times uh but not in any drastic way and he certainly was not a dog that would harm anyone or anything but uh but he got into some mischief for sure so i guess um oh i guess we can go back to some of the serious stuff um because you uh you do have a story about how you were diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in 1988 um, so, you know, being a runner and having this disease, I mean, did it change anything for your running? Um, was it, you know, maybe better once you had the diagnosis, cause at least you, you knew, uh, what to expect or, uh, was there anything that you started doing differently to manage flare ups or avoid them just oh. in case there are other runners with the same problem? Yes. I mean, I think. I think there uh, we have much better treatments for it now. Um, so the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation have uh, have really been fantastic in in uh, evolving the research and some of the treatments. I'm on a treatment now that I feel had I uh, had as a young person would have completely eradicated my ulcerative colitis. Uh, th those treatments weren't available uh, back at the time when I was going through it. So to answer your question. It really was, I, I, I was seeking medical, medical attention. Uh, it was largely not 100% effective in, in helping me avoid some of the pitfalls of, of 
the disease. Uh, so I, I had to just cope with it as best I could. I think what's wonderful about the disease now is that people are talking about it. Now, th that was a story I wasn't going to write. That was never on the queue. Um, and then uh, other people began bravely writing about themselves. Uh, one person in particular, Alex Treasure, uh, put an article in the Toronto Star, uh, and she was a Canadian uh, national team member in the high jump. And I thought to myself, it's time to write about it. And I, I tried to keep a sense of humor about that issue. I, I, I wrote, I mean, the predicaments as a distance runner who doesn't yeah. have control of their bowels because of this punishing disease, uh, the, the predicaments that one finds themselves in uh, are quite harrowing. And if you remove some of the shame that one might feel around such predicaments, they're actually kind of funny. There's some that are kind of funny. Uh, and I try to pr present them with humor, but also touch on the path of accepting the feelings of shame around having an issue, a gastrointestinal issue that takes away your control without having to abandon my love of the sport altogether, uh, which would have been another option that I never really entertained. I guess there are two aspects to it is like, you feel that because you're an athlete, like you should be healthy and um, to have a diagnosis can sometimes feel like, I don't know if shame is really the right word, but just, um, I don't know, like just feels like it, it shouldn't belong to you. Unfair. Um, yeah, like unfair, because here you are like doing everything right, quote unquote, and and life gives you that. And you didn't just have this issue. You also had a little bit of a heart issue as well. Um, yes, and uh, where I guess, yeah, you still probably do have it. And like, how did that affect your I mean, you were still a, a really good runner, like you ran sub four minute miles and you represented Canada but uh, I guess it did it did affect some of your races. Yeah, you know, I, I do talk about it a little bit in the book uh, in different places, but I, I try not to put too much emphasis on it, but I, I do tag it in a few places because I think it was part of the challenges of, of my running career. Uh, so it does factor into some stories. But the more I think about that, I think of every almost every runner I know uh, and you could look at the challenges and re regrets or lost opportunities that that present from those challenges. And, and it brings me to one of the commonalities, I feel, like with, with every level of runner, you know, you're going to have challenges that you either meet or, or fall short of in, in your estimation for whatever reasons uh, that you have in your life, right? And, and um those challenges are, are, are part of our humanity. And, I, and I've really come to feel myself for my own part that uh, the true uh, value of a life of running uh, comes from that, all of the experiences. Yeah, yeah, these wonderful triumphs, but they're tempered with these real, really difficult things too. And, and how do we relate to a cross-section of humanity if we don't have them both, right? And if we can't, really look at the journey as something uh, that's wonderful despite uh, the challenges and, and, and that we can share the challenges. I, I like to talk about Doug Consiglio. He's a great example. And I'll just 
quickly tag on his aspects of his story as I saw it. Doug, Canadian record holder, 1500 meter mile indoors, 1500 meter outdoors. 1988 comes around. He finishes one second behind uh, Peter Rono in the Harry Jerome Classic, and he runs three minutes and 35 seconds to 1500. So it, it's uh, about a 352 mile. He shatters Canadian record yeah. by two seconds. One of the most beautiful pieces of running. I was there that day uh, watching and one of the most beautiful pieces of running I've ever seen. And you're looking at a guy at the pinnacle of racing and I'll throw Philbert Baye in there because he didn't get his chance at the Olympics. Another example. Yeah. But Doug, Doug then later that summer got Epstein's bar virus. And so by the time the Olympics rolled around, it basically sapped him of his capacity to, to race altogether. He went there didn't make it out of the heats, like could wasn't himself at all. I don't know that that it ever allowed him to get back to the trajectory that he was on because this guy was going to be one of the best in the world. And he was not going to be. He was one of the best. Oh, uh, Rona went on to win the Olympics. Uh, and, and just to give an example of, but if I look at Doug's career and, and all the things to celebrate and everything he's done for the sport in Canada, I think, okay, there's an example, another example of, of, a, of a person who, yeah, he took some hard hits, but boy, what, what he did sure was spectacular. Uh, I, I know he would be one who could really relate to the, the struggles and the, the victories, you know, and I think if we embrace both sides of that, I think then running uh, uh, will be all that much more applicable to people at every level that, that take part in the journey. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it it just means that, you know, we all have challenges. Um, sometimes you get to see people run at their best before they hit their challenges. And other times, like, you know, you'll never know how far you could have gotten because maybe you had those challenges earlier. I mean, just still just still simply uh, from our perspective, you know, because we're we didn't explain it to you at the start of the podcast and in our intro, but we've been trying to do like a sub three hour marathon and Liz has never done one. And that's kind of a target, but our approach is, okay, we set ourselves into a training process and we learn to enjoy the process and all of the value that comes from that and all of the learning and all of the lessons and all of the funny stories and, and, and basically enjoy that for what it is and where we're able to go. And if we achieve the thing whatever it is, you know, for you, it might be a, a sub four minute mile Harvey, or it might be qualifying for the Olympics. One you manage to do one. You don't quite manage to do maybe um, for Liz, it's a three hour marathon, but we kind of view that as the cherry on the cake. So the idea is to love the process and mine the process for the, as much value as you can get out of it and then accept the other things as they come. Yeah, and I think and I think that's uh, that's the true nature of our sport for anyone who takes part. Uh, uh, that you can celebrate so much, like having goals. Like you talk about three hours, you you have a goal, you're working towards that goal. Um, but the wonder is everything around it, and and if you achieve the goal, it's going to be part of the wonder. If you don't achieve the goal, then then uh, having put your best foot forward and done everything you can. All the all those treasurable nuggets are going to be uh, uh, interwoven into into the pursuit, just as you're describing. So um, I guess we can uh, rewind a little bit. I mean, not in terms of the book. We're fast forwarding in the book, but rewinding in your in the story of your life. 
Um, my favorite section, as I mentioned, it was the people section uh, because I like I just find it's amazing how people can have an effect on the direction of your life. And um, you seem to have some very special running influences pretty early on in terms of coaches. You had a high school coach, uh, Coach Browner. And yes. then uh, your University of Western coach, who just sounded like such an amazing man, Don Mills, who yes. he just dedicated his life to coaching and and um, you know volunteering at meets, and he just sounded like uh, like just a great person. Um, do you think that these two people were the reason that you ended up being a lifelong runner? I mean, uh, I I could name um, I think probably six or seven individual coaches who who were uh, had extremely powerful influences. Uh, it's interesting that you you mentioned Don Mills because just last night I was after Don passed away, I just last night was reading all the tributes uh, that happened. Don was Don was a gift to the running community. Uh, he coached so many at so many levels and and whether you were a beginner or you were an international athlete, he, he gave you his heart and soul and his whole life was dedicated to running. So he was a real gift to the community and I, I benefited from that. But he was never, he coached me at the University of Waterloo, but he was never my um, uh, lifetime coach. I, would, I, had, I had two coaches, uh, one named Vito Dalben, who came after, during and after high school. And another coach uh, named Paul Post here in Toronto, uh, and those two coaches, uh, um, I'm so indebted to. Vito took me from a skinny high school kid, and with the help of Coach Brown uh, in high school, they they developed me into a into a national and international level runner uh, through hours and hours of volunteer time and expertise. Um, I wrote a full story about Coach Brown because uh, he was this omnipresent person uh, in the community, uh, the high school community that I that I came through. He's a huge personality and a really interesting story. Um, at the same time, Vito Dalben, he was a much more private man. And, and I said, I'd like to write a story about Vito, but I'd have to write a book. I would have have to write a book about Vito because the level uh, of commitment and the, and the nuances and the amount that he gave to my life. He's like my brother, you know, he's like a brother to me in my heart. And, uh, and he had that kind of influence. And then when I moved to Toronto to be with my wife, Paul Post from the uh, Toronto Olympic club, who's a legend, Paul's a legend. Uh, he's coached. I think he's probably coached a, a dozen or more sub four minute milers. Uh, and developed uh, uh, all kinds, of, and, and was uh, he? He's in his mid nineties now. He's still still going strong. Oh, wow. wow! Yeah, but Paul, uh, he's in the in the Hall of Fame uh, uh, for road running and for coaching. Uh, anyway, he's a he's a legend among among uh, uh, Canadians. But Paul uh, was, handled my career here in Toronto, and and, and was a wonderful wonderful guider, uh, wonderful guide. I also, I feel about coaches like all the way from peewee baseball and hockey and all those coaches, they're little angels that, uh, you know, gave of themselves for, because they wanted to. And, and here I was just this, this little person coming along that could take advantage of it. I mean, how grateful I am to all of them. Uh, but certainly uh, Don Mills, Paul Post, Vito Delben, 
and Coach Brown are along the, among the top of the list for me. And something that I didn't know is that um, you're actually a member of a Canadian team that set a running world record in 1998. And if, yeah. I, if I read rightly in your book, that world record set in 1998 still stands today. It does. It does still stand. So that's, that's some world record mm-hmm. um, for the 100-mile relay. So that's 100, 100 people who run one mile each. Correct. Yes. So we had 100 people each run one mile each in a continuous relay. So it was a 100-mile relay. And uh, we uh, uh, brought together uh, some of the best in Canadian uh, distance running of of all time uh, and of the time. And this was set uh, just leading in, uh, uh, it was 1998, I believe, we set that, that record. Uh, and it still stands. We broke the, the existing world record by a full 15 minutes. Um, and then uh, a year later, we did an all-women's world record. Oh, and wow. existing world record by 15 minutes. And both of those records still stand. Uh, I know I'm, an American team attempted uh, a couple of years ago, and they missed by eight minutes. Uh, but it's just testament to... Uh, what a, a great group of runners we brought together on that so day. We had a hundred people who are um, pretty darn fast. Every single mm-hmm. one of them is pretty darn fast. I, I I would imagine. Did you did you place like a, a qualifying time on on the membership? No, uh, I just basically uh, it was early in the days of email, uh, so I basically just built this team. But what I did was I reached out. I, I mentioned Doug Consiglio earlier. Well, Doug was pivotal because I reached out to Doug first and, and asked him, and Doug being the Canadian record holder out at the time, to- or not at the time, it had just been broken uh, in the previous couple of years by Kevin Sullivan and Graham Hood, who are still the two fastest Canadians ever. Uh, and I reached out to Doug and I said, will you come in? And then when Doug came in and he brought in another Canadian record holder, the one that he broke, Dave Reed's Canadian record, he brought Dave in. Then I have two Canadian record holders, I'm a sub four minute miler. It's my community. So I'm reaching out to all of my competitors, but who are my friends? I'm reaching out to all of this, these people in this community and we're pulling, uh, we begin to pull together this core group of really uh, storied runners. And then everybody came running. I, I landed Kevin Sullivan. Well, when, when Kevin said yes, and, and he, and uh, he was not the Canadian record holder at that time, but he was a, 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 a massive uh, force in Canadian distance running at that time. Mm-hmm. When he landed, then the people started coming to me, uh, and 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 then I started uh, like labeling them. Like once you once I promised someone a position, I'm not going to take it away. And I have to say, I had I had regrets on some of the people I I couldn't include on the team who really deserved a spot. But when I promised someone a spot, I, I wouldn't take it away. And and everybody everybody deserved that was on the team deserved to be on. But of course there were some other people that came to the table a bit later uh, and we had the team built by that time and and we had to leave it the way it is. But just, just out out of interest, the last five runners were the five Canadian record holders in order were the last five runners of the relay. And and so it was, became a real celebration of our history uh, as, as a a distance running uh, group of people in Canada, middle distance running. It also says something about the depth of like 
that race distance at the time. I mean, that you had all those people kind of in the same generation or approximately that could run those fast miles. I mean, you had a hundred of them and you weren't even including everyone. Yes. Uh, yeah. Very fortunate. Uh, again, it's, it speaks to the community. And I know in the book, I, I don't just tell the story of the relay. I, I try to paint a picture of what this community looks like, at least this segment of the community. This would be the more the track and field um, high level uh, elite uh, uh, running community, the high level elite men's running community. But I try to paint a picture of it as a community. I tell the life stories of different people within it and I try and weave it into the story to paint a picture. But of course, you know, I, I, I did, I, there's an equal story on the women's side and then there will be an equal story on the road racing side. But this one is a little snapshot of kind of what that community community looks like. Well, something I was not aware of at all and never heard of and didn't even know existed. So I found it absolutely fascinating to read, to read that one. Oh, thanks, Alan. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, uh, yeah, it was, it's, you know, you think of your top 10 things in your life that day. Yeah. That was a top tenner. The, the racing, um, the racing stories and the insights of the person who's racing while they're racing and how they feel and what they see around them while the race is going on. I always find that fascinating. And, and I always find it super motivating as a runner to read about that. And I, I was super interested in your your story about the the cherry festival, the cherry yes. cherry blossom mile in 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 the U.S. Where you met on a race preceding race, you met this American guy Dennis who was running his local mile, and you yes. were running with him, and yes. you ended up being the two front runners. And I thought it was fascinating the way that you assessed him because you're running extremely fast in this mile right at the front. And this guy suddenly sees you next to him and you see him and you're able to talk us through what you see in the guy in terms of how surprised is he to see you? Is he expecting to win? What's he wearing? Does he have a sponsor? He's moving ahead. He's looking authoritative. He's looking relaxed. He's clearly expecting to win and he's got the, he's got the pedigree to do that. And you're sort of weighing him up. Um, at the same time as a, as a competitor. And I think that, that was kind of quite a fascinating insight. I think somebody who obviously um, is an expert at their craft, that's you at the mile and how that played out and then went on to the cherry mile where the cherry blossom festival or yeah, whatever it was called. Cherry festival mile. Correct. Yeah. Where, where I think you ran one of your best ever. That's right. I ran my fastest ever uh, mile there on that day. And, and I do talk about it in that story. And it was my first time running the mile faster than four minutes. So it was very special. Um, but the race you described was the race that that uh, cued me to enter the race where I broke four minutes for the mile. And I think uh, if, if it's okay, I'd love to tell you a little bit about the evolution of that story, the writing process, because yeah, great. I think your listeners might find it fascinating because it, 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 I, I feel I feel it's a kind of a fascinating story. So everything that I describe, so this is a race, I'm a Canadian boy living pretty close to the border, and, and I go to Detroit to race in a, a one-mile road race, and um, I find myself alone at the three-quarter mile mark with this other very fine runner. And I assessed that runner on, on a lot of cues, like you were talking about, how fast he was able to run, how fast he changed his pace, 
how authoritatively he went to the front. He was sponsored. He was wearing a Domino's pizza uh, jersey. You don't get sponsored unless you're a very good runner. And I knew that he would be surprised to see anyone with him at that stage in the race because he was that good. Uh, so I, I assess what's going on. We, I actually end up winning that race on the sprint uh, over this man um, who holds the course record uh, for that race, which was a couple seconds faster than we ran on that day. And I come to know him and then he tells me about the Cherry Festival mile. But in the writing of that story, I had uh, I had written a version of that story that was quite almost exactly what you read uh, in the book. And I had submitted it for a critique to uh, a famous and accomplished uh, Canadian author who's also a great was also a fine runner in his youth, a man named Lawrence Hill. Now, Lawrence Hill wrote a, wrote a best-selling book called The Book of Negroes, and, mm -hmm. and he's considered one of the great authors. And, and, and fortuitously, my, my life landed me at lunch with Lawrence, Lawrence Hill through a convoluted uh, uh, bunch of connections. And I started we started talking organically uh, around the table, and it came out that I was writing the story. And he said, send me, send me some of your work. Let me critique it. So I sent him that piece. Now, you who've read all of my work, I sent him a piece about the pinnacle of my racing career. And that's the only piece he got. And he wrote back and he said, oh, it's good, this and that. Uh, you know, it's a little bit, it, it reeks a little bit of, of uh, you know. Like, self Self-aggrandizement. Exactly, self-aggrandizement, exactly those words, yeah. right? And uh, and he said, you know, I, I want us to know about this and I want to know about that and and what motivates you. and, and so uh, after my feelings stopped being a little bit hurt, <laughs> as, as with any criticism I ever yep. got, um, I said, okay, I've got to trust what this man is saying. Like he's a, he's a, he's a master. So what's he asking me for? And, and I reevaluated the story. I spent, I spent more time on the character of Dennis because I talked about what it feels like uh, as an athlete to, to be uncertain. To, to get beat when you weren't expecting to get beat. And I and I imposed some of my thoughts into Dennis's character and rewrote that whole section about what it feels like to have kind of like like you're building your you're running uh, like the building of a house and you're putting those bricks in place and creating this foundation and creating the confidence and all of a sudden something comes along and kicks some out. And what's that like when your whole life is dedicated to that pursuit? And I, I really explored that because Lawrence had asked me as as a as a writer to to bring bring more of the humanity uh, into the process of of uh, of the writing of that story, uh, and and so it really I I added it and I'm like oh that made the story better it, you know and it just I wanted to tell your listeners about it just as part of the process of writing a story and rewriting it and taking criticism and allowing a story to evolve and, 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 and really trying to give the reader more. Uh, that was a really great example of how I got guidance from one of the very best. You even, I liked the little part about the lady that let you put your stuff on the front porch, like when you were at the Cherry Festival mile. Yeah, it was yeah, just cool. this lady with this nice looking porch and you were just sitting outside, I guess, before uh, most of the 
competitors got there, but you, I guess you were going to warm up and um, she, she offered you all kinds of things. You want to use the bathroom and she didn't know you. And she was just like, uh, seemed very generous. And I uh, ended up just using her porch to put your stuff on. But um, it, it, it seems like she really kind of took a liking to you. She found out you were from Canada and um, yeah. And then when you won the race, it just seemed like it was almost like a little bit of a victory for her. You know, she, she was so high. She seemed like she was so happy. Absolutely. You know, it, um, it was, uh, okay. So this person, uh, owned the home out by the start line of the race. So, uh, you make, make your way over to the start line and she owned the home that was adjacent to the start line of this road race. And, uh, um, in my story, I, I reference her as kind of like a mother energy because it was this welcoming, uh, nurturing energy. And the Miles story is the only story I talk about my mother and my father. I wrote that story when my father, sorry, I get a little emotional talking about this. Um, I wrote that story when my father was dying. I was just happened to be the time when I was writing that story. And I, I, in no other stories had I talked about mom and dad. And in the mile story, I weave, I weave in my relationship with my parents and how they're active uh, in procuring what happens to me in the world and, 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 and facilitating my life as a, as a human being, obviously, but as a runner, but also my characteristics as a person. And I really try to weave that in there. And and so having her, you know, obviously she's a real person that that happened in, in the event, but having her uh, um, as a mother energy to, that I could introduce and also bring, my parents couldn't be there. I, you know, I'm hopping in my mom's car and driving five hours to this race. I don't know anybody, but she was also a wonderful vehicle to bring my sentiments about my parents with me on the day because she was this mothering energy. And uh, so um, I was really happy to have her incorporated in the story that way. One, because that's what she was, but two, because she could also then draw my, my, my own parents into the, in the narrative at the moment. And some of the, like anytime, oh, anytime I read that, that piece out loud, I get really choked up talking about her and her role and, and then how how my parents come into that yeah it's really personal <laughs> really personal for me i think you just demonstrated how authentic your stories are yeah they clearly affect you still now yeah, yeah absolutely i mean i think if you want to resonate with human beings you you, you need to put yourself in there you know you need you do you need to sometimes in a vulnerable way and I hope I've done that in my stories to to help people relate to them as human beings because they're not just running stories. They're they're stories of 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 a human perspective, I think. Yeah. Um, so I guess this is a good um place to insert my question. In the last uh, section about family, you actually explained in the sort of intro section that you wanted to um, write about the people that your children have become, but you decided against it because you thought that they should write their own stories. Um, how did you, how did you make that decision? Yeah, um, I, I pondered over it for a long time, and I came up with ideas, and you begin to craft 
craft different stories about about your children and 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 how they relate to you know how running kind of connects some of the things because that is the central theme of the book. Um, but I stopped myself because I felt that the power of my relationship to the children and my opinions about the different things that happen to them in their world um, are too important for me to take a stab at writing. And I wanted to just simply say that, that like after really thinking about it, I felt that for me to venture down this road was too risky because, you know, the way, the way I feel about my children or what I might think about them and to put that down on paper and put it out publicly, um, I feel like maybe that was sacred ground that, uh, that they just need to know that I love them with, excuse me, with everything I have as a, as their father. And that that's just where we're going to leave it. That I, need to respect, <laughs> yeah. that I just need to respect that, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and that's where I left it. And I think that's kind of what I say in that introduction. Yeah. They, at the end of the day, they need to write their own stories uh, with their own lives. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's, and that's the way it should be. Even though I suspect you could write some very emotional little stories if you if you did that, but you know, there's more to life than than writing a book. That's right. Did you compile all the stories and say, "Oh, I've got this big jumble of stories, and I need to decide which ones I'm going to put in the book and which ones I'm not, and how do I organize them?" Or did you start with the chapters that that we talked about at the start and then slot the stories in there? How did you sort of decide on the chapter themes? And, okay, and which wow. stories to have and not. Thank, thank goodness. Thank you for that question. Wow. I'm, I'm so happy to be able to state this. Uh, I talk about David and Noreen, right? And Noreen's the one who who does, who does organized the child, Charles Taylor Prize for Literary Nonfiction. Well, I had originally, the original draft of the book had all the stories all in a row with no sections. And, and, I, and Noreen, I asked Noreen, who ran this book prize, um, to review it, uh, the, the book as it stood ready to go. Uh, and she did. And she said, look, the writing, she said, I feel the writing is on par with, with the finalists that make the Taylor prize. She really felt that it, it was, the writing was really good of these individual stories. And she felt really strongly about it. She said, but as a reader kind of felt like I got lost, um, because it's one story after another and it did, they just continue on. Uh, so she said, you know, what about what about having sections where you pool the stories and 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 giving that some thought to give the reader a little more structure? So I thought about that and I started sort of dividing the stories. I, I came up with all these possible sections and then started putting the stories in. Well, what could that be? Oh, how can I put that in this section? Of course, the, the Chechka stories, they don't necessarily belong in this section, anyway. but I said, okay, I'm just gonna parcel them out across the sections. But the other stories, I find, I finally came up with the sections that uh, Liz described um, that that I could kind of piece all those stories into, and then I thought, well, I know why they're going to go into those sections, but the reader's not going to know. So, oh, why don't I tell a story that decides that that sort of describes why it's a section, and then I got like six extra little bonus stories in there. And I, and when that was done, I, I felt so good about the change. I felt so much better. And I'm so happy I even had these six extra little stories. They're really short, most of them. 
Um, but they introduced the sections and, uh, and I really feel that, wow, what a dramatic effect uh, Noreen's advice had on the, on the final book. Do you have any stories that are your particular favorites? Any, any that are? Well, that, that's a hard question. Endearing towards mm -hmm. you? I mean, the, 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 they're all your, I'm, like, I'm, I'm giving you selfish choice here. I mean, they're all your children, and I'm asking you to choose between your children. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, they're all, when I hear them, they're all they're all special. But, you know, there's certain stories like um, uh, the, the running blind story is very special to me. I, I feel that it was the first one that got published. And um, some of the feedback I got from that story uh, really buoyed me and I really felt like there was a lot of my values that I stated in that story that were important as I described the one mile story is very special not only because it describes this pinnacle but mostly because I spoke of mom and dad I got to read I got to do a reading in Sarnia now dad dad's already passed but I got to do a reading in Sarnia where I read the bit about my mother and uh, she's there with all her friends okay. and I'm reading about her. Oh, that's so special. Did you, you know? hold it together? I know. I know. <laughs> I got choked up and that's, that's the way that's me and that's fine, but I got a little choked up. That's okay. Um, but I, you know, I held it together. No, I didn't, I didn't fall off my chair or anything like that. Did, did she I, held, hold it together too? I, you know what? I think, I think it was special for her. You know, yes, she she held it together for sure. I don't know what was happening because she was in the audience and it was dark out okay. there. But uh, but I think it was special for her. And I know it was special for me. And on that same reading, for example, I had Coach Brown there and I had my coach Vito Dalben there. And I got to read and, and I had from the Running Blind story, the the gentleman, Dave Turnbull, that I went to the uh, the uh, event as his support person. Mm -hmm. uh, so he did the shot put he was in the audience and I I got to read little pieces of each of their stories to while they're in the audience with a hundred other people that's pretty cool very friend it was cool again that was another top 10 it was so cool and so special and uh yeah and I think if nothing else I remember after that reading if nothing else happens with this book that, that opportunity would have made all that work work worthwhile because it was just so special. And uh, uh, I don't even, as, as I go along, oh, you're you asked me the favorite stories. Um, so mm -hmm. those, those stories do hold, like each story has a special place for different reasons. But if I had to pick a couple, certainly the mile story because of, of, of having mom yeah. and dad in there and certainly the running blind story because of, of some of what it carries as well, but they all do have, they all do resonate in a, in a special. And the Danny Cassop story, I don't yep. that's what, that's oh, what I've that's got written. One, that's the yeah. one Alan chose. That's what I've got written down. Yeah, go go uh, ahead, Alan. And, because, and um, because it's kind of unfair to ask you a question like that without having an opinion myself. So um, I'm going to ask you what your favorite story is, maybe, Liz. But I thought that the Danny Kassab story was sort of, it had pieces of everything. I found it fascinating. I found it informative. I found it uplifting. I found it uh, moving uh tinged with sadness so and all parceled up in running so i found found that to be uh, almost a mini like a novelette in itself almost oh, yeah i enjoyed thank that you. a lot thank you, you yeah. i mean clearly you got it that story does resonate with a lot of people and sure does with me 
Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, just the way that uh, everybody came together, you know, to help this guy. So, I mean, you know, the this poor guy was um, new to Canada without his family. And yeah, he found a family with uh, with running. Yeah, on a bunch of levels, uh, because he was such a fabulous runner. For those who don't know about Danny, uh, he won the Toronto Marathon. He won the Montreal Marathon. Um, he was one of Canada's great young marathon talents coming up. So he uh he came here from um um i want i'm stuck on uganda it's not uganda it's uh uh war-torn congo the war-torn congo uh, landed him here in canada at the, after the uh francophone games in ottawa he defected but he was here with no family uh had to leave his family home uh, never never saw his mom again um and uh he uh, uh had to adopt a family here and Danny's story is tragic because, and, and I don't know how much I should reveal or if I should just let people read it mm. because it is mm. such a special story, but it it's spiritual. It was a story that was spiritual. Uh, and, and boy, you, you talk about a series of events kind of guiding you on a path that's unexpected. Mm -hmm. So I, I have to, I, I'm trusting the readers to come along on the journey on that story. But that's that for me, it, yeah, there's a vulnerability there, but gosh, how many people even were vulnerable, like the, his coach Ross, just in sharing the deep grief uh, that mm -hmm. he was going through uh, yeah. because of, of what happened in that story. Uh, the number of people who were willing to be vulnerable along with me, and uh, yeah, it was very special. But thanks, Alan, and, and thanks for uh, Liz for for getting it because yeah, and for for taking that ride. Yeah, I think definitely. Um, I guess I said it at the beginning. I have a favorite section. Um, like, and I like the people section. That that's where that story was. But also the the Don Mills story. I mean, was um, was just really good. I mean, so much dedication and and I mean, it it wasn't you know like I was reading through the story and this guy was so dedicated to track and field and then you find out that he actually had a full time job. <laughs> So he had a full-time job that he was like juggling with, you know, being this just very dedicated person, like just volunteering every, every bit of time and every bit of money he had to his athletes. And yeah, it's, uh, I mean, that one, that one was, uh, that one was the one that stood out to me, or at least one of them. Um, I don't know if I could pick a favorite, so. Yeah, that's wonderful that, that Don that Don resonated with you like that because you should have seen these tributes uh, like and even his funeral I've never seen anything like it it was like a reunion of running from anyone who was in Ontario or close enough to make it like there had to be four or five hundred runners there all talking all with these great stories about this man who was a quirky wondrous kind of guy but just that pure dedication to others a life of service a service a life to others and, and that was done mm -hmm. yeah maybe we could just uh ask you because this book was published in partnership with athletics ontario so um is there like a preferred place that you want to direct listeners to buy a copy if they're um if they're interested in reading it yes absolutely um Definitely, if you if you Google me, it'll it'll come up. But the the uh, site is taking life in stride, which is the title of the book. 
takinglifeinstride.ca and, and anyone can order the book from that site. If you, uh, if you want me to sign it, uh, like my email is, is on the site as well. Just send me a note. Uh, I'd be happy to sign it for you. Um, also, uh, I'm trying to think it can be ordered also through the athletics Ontario website. Uh, if, uh, if you have any trouble finding it, um, and uh, proceeds from the book are being donated to Athletics Ontario. So it's something that uh, I partnered with them uh, in publishing the book and, uh, and I'm giving the donation, uh, the proceeds uh, of the book uh, to them. And uh, um, they've been a wonderful partner uh, to uh, be involved with. Yeah, I'm just going to say, um, when I was growing up, I remember like in Ontario, just like Ontario was such a powerhouse. Like we would go race in Kingston because, you know, um, like we live in Montreal. I, I grew up here, uh, but we had a coach and he would bring us to a few races that were in Ontario. One of them was in Kingston. Um, and I just remember those Ontario runners, like it was, there were just so many of them that were so good, like such good runners. Um, you know, I was used to uh, here, you know, in Quebec, I do the Quebec provincials and I would be, you know, on the podium and I would go over there and I would just get crushed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm going to say right back at Quebec because I went to one Ontario championship and I, I figured I was going to be the best guy there. Got out there and there's these four guys from Quebec came down and I'll tell you, Pierre Levaille, Andrew mm-hmm. McGuigan, Jean Lagarde, and Philip Lehert. They came down and I came fifth. <laughs> These guys isn't, were. Isn't Pierre Lavaille the uh, owner of uh, Boutique Endurance? Uh, Boutique Endurance. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Boutique yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Well, Pierre, I mean, he was, uh, he, I think he's the only man to, to ever to medal at nationals in the 1500. The eight hundred and the four hundred meter hurdles. He was he was that good. And, wow. Uh, yeah. He I when I made my national team, he was on there with him, and we've been friends uh, ever since. He he's a real deal boy, real deal, great runner. But Philip Philip Lehert is is sadly a person who who died far too young, and he was the one who started the endurance boutique, and uh, and then uh, um, some of his partners up here. I think being one of them, I could be wrong about the exact evolution, but I know mm. he was at one point the, uh, uh, one of Canada's greatest uh, distance runners in the steeplechase in the 5,000 cross country. Um, and, uh, he founded that store, uh, and sadly w- was, uh, I-, I can't remember all the circumstances around how he passed, but very young. Uh, and, uh, but these guys were real deal, man. Quebec, they, they were <laughs> tough, tough hombres. I'll tell you. I had, had some of my best races against the Quebec racers. Okay, well, good to know. Maybe maybe that's for book two. There you go. (laughs) The rivalry. Um, And if people want to follow you and find out what you're up to, Harvey, are you on social media or? Yes, uh, under Harvey Mitro on Facebook is probably your best place to get me. Uh, By all means, uh, send me a friend request. I'm going to say yes. Um, And uh, I'm on Instagram, but I'm a novice. And I I still don't really know how to post well there. I'd love to post little (laughs) clips. Every once in on uh, Facebook, I, I'll do a little reading about the book. Uh, and I've got a few uh, blurbs that I've I posted. I, I did a few little promotional things. Uh, can I mention one of them? Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, 
I had David Bailey, Canada's first sub four minute miler. He's done a blurb on the inside cover of my book and mm -hmm. we lost David this past summer. Uh, and David was such a believer in this book and, and he was helping me. He'd go on programs with me and help me promote the book. Uh, and uh, I had one of his blurbs and uh, one of the little promotions I did on Facebook was a, was a pictorial of all some of David's amazing racing over the years. Great piece of uh, history uh, uh, where uh, David, uh, David was part of it. And I would help use promote the book, which, which, uh, which sends me to an, another thing. I, have you guys come across Bruce Kidd's book? Yes. We've, yeah, we've, we've definitely heard about it. We were, we were actually on the podcast with, um, with, uh, Athletics Ontario. They invited us on as, as, as guests okay. and, uh, they were raving about Bruce Kidd's book on there. I think that's where the last time we. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, because then, um, like, I think they also had him on one of the episodes as well. That's right. On yeah. The, yeah. Uh, he's been on, on a few podcasts, but the reason I bring up Bruce, having written a book as well, uh, that came out this year, Bruce was David's training partner, along with the Olympic uh, silver medalist, uh, Bill Crothers. And they were this, this core piece of history that, uh, that wonderful, that, that some books are coming out to preserve it because uh, I I'm, I'm almost done Bruce's book now. And it's, it's a great read as well. Another book for another day, I'm sure. Yeah. We'll put it mm -hmm. on the list. Yes. Definitely. So, so the, the book taking life in stride by Harvey Mitro, I mean, you've heard all quite a lot about it now and I hope you're getting out there on the site as we talk to you to, uh, to order your copy. The book's packed full of short stories. Some of them are very short, um, I think I counted 29, not counting the introductions, the chapter introductions. There are also a series of line drawings, sort of illustrations in, in the book and some color photographs. Um, I particularly like the one of Chachka with with his toy and and the one of Harvey winning the Cherry Festival Mile in full in full uh full glory crossing the finish line. That was that was great to see after reading the story. The book's able to bring different qualities to different stories, as I said during the process, humor, history, uh, human relationships, uh, the wonder of nature, um, as well as the heart and the soul of a runner. And, you know, we heard we heard Harvey getting emotional while he was talking about some bits of it. He certainly clearly put his heart and soul into it. Uh, the grouping of stories is by themes. For example, racing is one theme. So there's no chronological order. Sometimes we see Harvey as a child. Sometimes we see him as a student. Sometimes we see him as an older person, but it doesn't move in chrono chronology. That's not how it's grouped. Uh, the connecting theme, I think, is one of, of simple authenticity. The stories are not always perfect, but they're certainly real and honest. And, and sometimes they are, in fact, perfect, uh, like running out on Christmas morning and being joined by an endless series of deer. So um, I guess I'll start by saying that at first I wasn't really sure about the whole short story format. Um, the reason is because in general, I like when stories last and I find that short stories are kind of over too, too quickly, uh, but I ended up really enjoying the book. It, it made me realize that in the end, everyone's life is really just a bunch of short stories. Um, I liked the cover art. Uh, there are elements that refer to the stories, but you'll actually only really understand after reading uh, because, you know, if you look at it just now online, you'll 
you know, it, it's yeah, not going to really like make that. any I went, sense. Oh, what's this all about? <laughs> and then when I read the stories and looked at the book afterwards, I thought, oh, it's perfect. It's a perfect cover, actually. Um, they're a good mix of emotional stories and lighthearted stories. So uh, I think the mix is right. And uh, bear with me for this one. This is one bullet point, but it's going to be a little bit long for me to get this idea out. One of the quotes that stood out to me was in the explanation of why Harvey decided not to write the stories of his children and who they have become. And the quote is, for me to write a story of who I think they are just wouldn't be right. And this quote made me think of how people often have to like move away from their support system in order to change substantially. For example, like, you know, they always say that an alcoholic who wants to stop drinking needs to stop seeing his drinking buddies because they'll usually not support this new goal um, because it like the person no longer responds to their vision of the person. Uh, so, or sometimes it's just because, you know, um, maybe they've seen that person fail in their in achieving their goal so many times that they don't even really believe that they can they can achieve it. And so I think like Harvey, what he was trying to do is not paint a picture of his children in in order to give them freedom to be and develop into the people that they want to be. And uh, I just found that that was just like. I don't know why that stood out to me so much, but uh, it, it was kind of a powerful insight. I think that it I touches you personally in your background. It Liz. does, because I've definitely uh, changed my environment to, you know, represent more like what I what I wanted to become. So um, I can kind of relate to that. And I think it's great when when people can, you know, support you in things that that are different from you know from uh let's say like the person you are and i think that's a little bit what friendship does is you know you find a friend and if you have a good friend then that friend will stay your friend despite all the changes in your life um and i find running friends are a lot like that because we're all very different in, in terms of our lives but we're joined together because of running which is the sport that we all share and love Anyway, that was that was a really long bullet point. Um, so, so you next... might not know how you did it, Harvey, <laughs> but you've reached out through your book and touched Liz in a profound way. <laughs> yes, definitely. You know what? As an author, I listened to both what you said, and I am so, so grateful because both of you got it. You got the book. What else could I ask for? You really did get it. Like what, what you said, Liz, like I know exactly where you went. Like yeah, and 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 Alan, and which stories resonate with you? Like wow, you guys really got it. I feel really grateful. That's great. Um, also, I I wanted to just say that I enjoyed learning pieces of Canadian running history, um, and you know how runners would discover races by word of mouth, and you would have these high level races like the Cherry Blossom Festival Mile, uh, and you would have all of these great runners there. But this was before, you know, it was posted online and you had social media. So oh, Google it. It's, it's amazing. Mm. I, I find that that's amazing. Um, so I, also, I'll just say that there is an audiobook. Uh, so uh, if you, you know, want to feel like one of Harvey's uh, clients getting a, a story while you're on the treadmill, you can get the uh, audiobook format. 
absolutely. With with that, it probably just remains for us to say a big thank you, Harvey, for spending time with us and sharing in a personal way some of your stories and background. It has been such a pleasure. I've had so much fun talking to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Running Book Reviews. A big thank you to Harvey for providing review copies, signed review copy, review copies, no less, no less, and spending time with us today. If you'd like to leave us feedback about our podcast, we want to suggest a book that you'd like us to review in a future episode, please leave us comments on our social media. We are Running Book Reviews on Facebook and Instagram, and on Twitter, we are reviews underscore running. Please follow us and to find out about new episodes when they're released, or you can just subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming platform. If you've been listening for a while and you're wondering how you can help us out, there are a few ways. If you enjoy the podcast, spread the word. Tell your friends about us, share a link, uh, get other people interested in, in the podcast so we can grow our, read, our listenership. Uh, or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcast if this is how you listen to the podcast. Or you can rate us on Spotify out of five stars. Also, uh, you might have noticed if you're in one of our circle of uh, friends on Buy Me A Coffee, um, they were starting to put out little pieces of stories and pictures and outtakes on our Buy Me A Coffee site. Um, you can just go there. Just look for Running Book Reviews on the Buy Me A Coffee website. And if you feel so moved, you can buy us a coffee as well while you're there. That's all for today from Running Book Reviews. Bye. Bye for now.